All right, Isaiah chapter 40, we continue our journey through Isaiah's prophecy together. Last time we journeyed down as far as verse 12 in chapter 40, and we saw that chapter 40 really is giving to us, I might say, a comparison or a contrast, maybe both might be the right terms, regarding the frailty and the weakness of human beings in comparison to the the greatness and the awesomeness and the power and the strength of God. Uh, The Bible here, through the prophetic writer, has spoken about the frailty of you and I as people likening us to the grass of a field that's very temporary, it's very frail, it's short-term, it blossoms and then quickly it's mowed down, and even in its most glorious state, it fades rather quickly because it's frail and it's temporary. He also likened us as people to sheep, and of course we know that sheep are animals that are prone to wander. They're not always the most intelligent creatures. They tend to be weak and vulnerable, and they need a lot of care. They need a lot of guidance. They need to be fed and tended to and protected and uh, directed in many ways. And we're going to see later as we go on in this chapter, he likens us to grasshoppers, Uh, So there's all these continuous references to the frailty of you and I as people, how our lives are very frail, we're weak human beings, and in connection to that, he's also giving now the contrast and the comparison to the greatness of God and the power of God and how much greater and more awesome he is than us in who he is. In fact, we left off last time in verse 12. Uh, and we'd be picking up in verse 13, but look back with me in verse 12. You kind of grasp as he's speaking about the greatness of God here. He says of God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. In other words, taking into consideration all the waters that exist on the globe, every ocean, every body of water, every lake, every river, all the accumulation of the 70% of what we say the globe exists, is water rather than land mass. And it says that God is able to, in a sense, take all of that and he could hold it in the hollow of his hand. Uh, As he was creating things, know that he was pouring out a little here and a little bit there. And as God is able to manage something because of how great and vast he is, that's so much bigger than our comprehension, he says, and he's able to measure heaven with a span, that's from the thumb to the tip of the other side of the pinky that he's able to take a measurement of everything in that way and all of the dust and the dirt of the earth he's able to put it on his scales and to measure it out again the idea of that God is so great he's so vast he's so big that these things are small and insignificant to him and so we can rest in this reality of the greatness of God and take encouragement and comfort in that Now, going on with his idea of the greatness of God, he then goes on to say in verse 13, not only is God great in power, but now he's going to show us that God's great in his wisdom, that God's great in his knowledge and his awareness of all things. He says in verse 13, and who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? Now, we may say, I have, but it wasn't very accurate. (laughs) At times, we've all probably tried to do that, maybe give God a little bit of advice. You know, we, we pray uh, directive prayers rather than direct prayers. And we should just pray direct prayers, but sometimes, you know, we almost get a little crafty in our spiritual 
subtlety. We, we pray prayers, and we're almost kind of proposing to God ideas of how he ought to act in a particular situation or with a particular person. And so we advise the Lord or give him kind of our counsel. Lord, if you would like to, yada, 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 with this person, then that might not be a bad thing and your will be done, Lord. And, and we pray directive prayers sometimes or we, in our frustration, maybe as we're venting or whatever, we may give our input or our thought to God. But he says here, truly, who has directed the spirit of the Lord of how somehow God would actually take direction from us? How utterly foolish that is. And honestly, how scary that is. I don't want God to take direction from me. <laughs> I found the longer I've walked in my life, things work much, much better when I let God have his way and I'm just submitting and yielding and submitting and yielding. And as much as possible, I am letting the Lord direct me with his thoughts, with his ideas, his desires, and he's directing my steps. And he says, who is successfully, the idea is, directed the spirit of the Lord or become his counselor and taught him? Of course, there's nothing that he doesn't know. God knows everything. He's a God of all knowledge. There's nothing that God can learn. God is aware of everything. God has wisdom of how to handle everything properly. It says, verse 14, with whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Again, we don't have to show God things. God needs to show us things. But see, this is the wonderful thing, again, about the greatness of God, is that not only does God have incredible power, but because God has ultimate knowledge of all things, he can give to us counsel, he can give to us instruction, he can teach us, 14, verse 14, in the path of justice, and he can show us the way of understanding. And how wonderful it is to have access to a God who has full knowledge of everything and everyone and that we can seek him, and that we can take guidance from him, and he can direct us in our lives, and it's a wonderful benefit to have a relationship with that God, who's the God of all knowledge, the God of all wisdom, and when we don't know what to do, or we need insight or direction, look, when the Bible speaks in the New Testament about some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as the, the word of knowledge, the idea there is that God, who has knowledge of all things and all people in all situations, God knows everything. So it is not a difficult thing for God, by a manifestation of his Spirit's ministry, to deposit into the mind of one of his people knowledge or insight about something that they could not naturally know or they have not previously learned, because all he is doing is just depositing what he already knows into the mind of a believer through a supernatural act of his spirit for a purpose that may be maybe for ministering in a particular way or for protecting. Again, when we see Peter calling out Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament regarding their hypocrisy spiritually, and when they come in and they try and play the hypocrite and put on a whole show and act like they were doing something that they really weren't, Peter, through a word of knowledge, God reveals to Peter what Peter did not know. He didn't have little spies running around Jerusalem, you know, checking out what was going on in people's lives. God knew everything. And God, who had knowledge, put that knowledge in Peter's mind, and therefore he called them out. And he said, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And, and he basically reproved them and rebuked them for the very thing that he became aware they were doing because a God of all knowledge 
deposited that information into his mind. Such a glorious thing that we serve a God who knows all things so that when we don't know what to do, we can seek him. Lord, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what's the right path here. Lord, I need wisdom. I need understanding. And though we can't advise him, how wonderful that he advises us and that we can go to him and seek him and that he's able to give us direction in our lives. Verse 15 goes on to describe more of the greatness of God by saying, behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. That's very picturesque. And counted as the small dust on the scales. So notice the greatest of human forces, nations. I mean, it's one thing to talk about, wow, that's a, that's a large group or, or cities or states. He says here nations. So again, the the mass accumulation of the greatness of strength. We think of certain powerful nations, nations that are very strong and successful. We might, you know, maybe think of, you know, the, the, the status of the United States of America. I don't know so much today in the decline that we're in, but at one time we were a greatly feared nation in the globe as a superpower. But when we think about nations that we think, man, the power, the influence, the resources, of nations, not a nation, but nations, what nations can do. And God says all of the nations of humanity, God says metaphorically, they're basically like one drop in a bucket. That's what they're like, God says, in comparison to what I'm able to do. They're utterly, from God's perspective and his greatness, really just somewhat insignificant in their impact in their comparison to God. He says they're, they're like a drop in a bucket or as the small dust on the scales. And again, the small dust on the scales is again a, a metaphorical picture of how when you were in the marketplace, they would use the scales with weights and you'd put your merchandise on one side and weights on the other. But to show that you were a real honest salesperson in the marketplace before you would do your transaction, what you would do is you would you'd blow the dust off the scales. The idea is I don't want there to be an ounce of extra weight on there because I'm giving you a fair deal here. So you would just blow the dust off the scales. And this is the picture that God gives here. God says even the greatest forces, like a drop in the bucket and like the small dust on the scales, the idea is one breath and God can blow all those things over or completely remove them. It says, look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing, not difficult at all for him. And Lebanon, that area to the north of Israel that was known for its great forests and all the wood that you could get from these massive cedars and cypress trees. He says, all of Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. The idea is all the forests of Lebanon would not be sufficient to satisfy completely a sacrifice for the Lord, nor is its beast sufficient for burnt offering. All nations, verse 17, are before him as nothing, and they are accounted by him as less than nothing and worthless. Now, it's one thing when you're nothing. It's way worse when you're less than nothing <laughs> and worthless, God says. So again, he's using very picturesque language in regards to how really foolish it is when we arrogantly resist God, when we think somehow that we have a right to disregard God, to rebel against God, to thumb our nose at God, to spit in God's face. We don't need God. We're a self-governed person. We, we, can, we, don't, we don't have any need of this. And God says, 
do you realize how great I am in comparison to you and all of your greatness in humanity? And God here just really emphasizing this vast gap, really, not in a way where he's trying to be condescending or, or harsh or critical. He's just trying to show us very clearly the massive gap between the greatness of Almighty God, who can measure the waters in the hollow of his hand and span the whole universe with his hand in comparison to you and I as human beings in our greatest condition, even all, notice, not just nations, now he says all the nations, all the nations on the globe, all of humanity cumulatively in all their resources and best, he says, ultimately in comparison to God are as nothing, less than nothing and worthless in the sight of their influence against God, the idea would be. Verse 18, to whom then, he says, will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him? The idea there is that would be an utterly vain thing. To liken God to anything or to liken God to anybody. Now, sadly, this is one of the mistakes we make sometimes is we can make this tragic error even in trying to maybe understand God's ways and understand God's nature, sometimes we try and give illustrations about God. We were just talking recently in a conversation, you know, a few days ago, how sometimes we try and give like the analogies of, of, of the Trinity, this marvelous reality of one God manifest in three persons. And so we try and come up with these human explanations. Well, you know, I'm one human being, but I'm also, as one human being, I'm a father. I'm also a son, and I'm also a brother, but yet I'm one person. And so we, we, we try and use these human metaphors and descriptions when the reality is that is such a faint, weak, <laughs> and incomplete description of what it means that God is a trinity, that he is one God manifest in three persons uniquely, <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And sometimes we try and do this when the reality is I think to some degree, though the scripture gives us tremendous revelation of God, we, we have to be really careful with thinking somehow we could ever get to a place of understanding God without some degree of mystery. You know, you've probably all heard that adage before. When God becomes small enough for me to completely figure out, he's no longer big enough for me to worship anymore because I've got a full grasp on him. And the idea is almost like I, I understand him and he's under my grasp. And, and, and the reality is the Bible says, to whom can you liken God? There is no comparison, the idea. There is creator, God, and then there's everything else that exists because everything else that is created, every human being, everything that exists. There's only one like God. There is no comparison. There is no one like him even in the same category or close to such but yet, what does humanity often do? We have this innate awareness, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Like Romans 1 says, we may suppress the truth, though the invisible attributes of God are seen in creation, that there's order and design and there's a creator. Though there's the conscience of man, that God's hardwired in every one of us, testifying to the reality that God exists and I am accountable to, to, to someone who's created me and there's that sense in the conscience of every person there's this innate desire within us to worship because ultimately we're intended to worship God, but until we're willing to humbly embrace that, we foolishly do things where we create all other types of things to worship. And so even as he says here, who are you going to compare God to? 
the very next thing he says, the workman, and the idea here is the vanity of this, the foolishness of this, when you really think it out, the workman molds an image. So again, what's the workman doing? They're fashioning a idol, a god, something to worship out of their own hands. They're, they are making something. They are creating something that then they are going to say is their god. I mean, that in itself is complete lunacy if you think about it. Cre you creating something and then submitting to something that you created. But yet we do that sometimes. We submit to all kinds of things and give allegiance and devotion to things in our lives that we really shouldn't be ruled by. But he says the workman molds an image, and then the goldsmith, he overspreads it with gold. Again, if you're going to have a god, you want to make sure it's shiny, make sure it's got some, some value from a human perspective. And the silversmith casts silver chains. So again, you want him to have a nice necklace, gold god, silver chain on his neck maybe there. Uh, kind of looking like he's impressive and like he's important. Again, the, the value of God, the point here, is far superior than all the greatest amounts of human wealth and resources. You can throw all the gold in the world. You can throw all the silver into that. And, and look, those things were precious commodities. They were precious metals. And you can try and fashion a God in your own image to be as you want it to be. And that's how idolatry always was. It was fashioning a God in your image and in your likeness. And folks, to this day, that has not changed in, in humanity. People want to create God in their image. They want to acknowledge a, a existence of God, but it is not the God of the Bible. It is not the God who is the creator of heavens and earth, who revealed himself as the one true and living God. They want to create a God according to their image and their likeness that accommodates their life and the way that they want to live, that, that meets their standards and their rules, not saying, no, you are the only God. And so people make these vain efforts. And here he says, you can throw all the gold, all the silver, but the greatest resources of human wealth are nothing in comparison to the value of the one true and living God. Now, he goes on to say, verse 20, regarding this effort of idolatry, whoever is too impoverished, the idea is you can't afford the gold god. You can't afford the silver god. Man, I, I can't have one of those expensive gods. What, what am I going to do? Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution, he goes out and he chooses a tree that will not rot. So, hey, I'm at least going to get some cedar wood. I'm going to choose a tree. I'll just make sure I choose cedar. I don't want my God to rot. I can't make it of gold or silver. So I'm just going to make sure I get a, a good quality wood so it lasts a long time and fashion your God out of wood. Chooses a tree that will not rot. And he seeks for himself a skillful workman. You don't want it to be gruff. I'm, all right, I'm not going to carve it with my own pocket knife. I'm going to get me a good woodworker. Make sure my God's fashioned really well out of my nice wood to prepare a carved image that will not totter. The idea is you don't want your God to fall over. Not a good thing when you have to hold up your God rather than your God upholding you. You know something's really wrong when you're having to do something to sustain the very thing that you're dependent upon. I, I, I want a God not that I got to keep stable, but a God's going to keep me stable because <laughs> I'm unstable. And here's a, a, a fashion it with wood to try and make it according to what works for them, showing again how innately religious everyone automatically is, whether it's the gold, the silver, whether it's the wood. Notice, why do people create idolatry or idols in those ways? Because there is a yearning in every human soul to worship. 
We were hardwired to worship. The problem is, is that we're often worshiping the wrong thing until we come into right relationship with God. Verse 21, he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? And have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? So both, notice aspects, as I said earlier, of creation. Romans 1 speaks about how just looking at creation itself the design, the orderliness of creation, it testifies that there's got to be a designer behind this. There's got to be someone who has put this together. It's too marvelous what exists in creation, nature, the earth, the, the systems of our globe, as well as just the human body. It is too complex to have just randomly come to pass. It takes way more faith to believe that some lightning strike hit a puddle of ooze on pond scum and a little tiny cell got activated and then over billions and billions of years as it creeped along, developed a bud and a bud became an ear. And I mean, it takes way more faith to believe that than a loving, wise God of all knowledge with his design and complexity created humanity and gave to us a purposeful existence to have a relationship with him and to live on this earth and, and be made in his image and likeness. And so again, creation testifies to the reality. Our conscience testifies to this reality. We hear the voice of these things speaking to us as human beings. The question is, is whether or not we suppress that or whether we submit to that. And this is what, again, the prophet is declaring he says to those who may be trying to worship other things and reject God in their life, he says, come on, be honest. Have you not known your whole life that there's a God? He's saying, you can't answer that honestly and say that you've not known. Have you not known, have you not heard in your own conscience the reality that God exists and you're accountable and you shouldn't be doing those. He's, have you not heard the voice of God testifying to you throughout your life, trying to get your attention? Have you not heard through other people who are on this planet who have come into relationship with God, who God has lovingly sent across your path and you had a random meeting with them and lo and behold, you meet them and then all of a sudden they're talking to you about knowing God and having a relationship with God and you're realizing something happened in their life, and, and then they begin to talk to you and share with you about what it means to know God and have a relationship with Jesus. And he says, you can't tell me you haven't heard. People have Because God's faithful. He finds ways to speak to all of us, doesn't he? We can all look back in our life and realize that before we even came into relationship with the Lord, there were numerous times in my life that God sent different messengers and people across my path to make me aware of things about what it meant to have a relationship with him. He says, have you not been told to you from the beginning and have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? The idea is God leaves plenty of witness, plenty of testimony. That's why Romans 1 says that man will be without excuse. No one will ever be able to close their eyes in death and say, I never knew, I never heard. I'm completely innocent. Because see, God is a God of all knowledge would say, let me run a little video for you. Let me show you how many times you heard. Let me show you how many times you knew. You knew internally 
but you rejected me. You suppressed me. You ignored me. God says the testimony has been clear. Verse 22, take notice of this. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Reminds me of an old kung fu movie. Grasshopper. Sorry, I had to get that out of my system. Been holding that in all day long studying. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Notice verse 22. He sits above the, I have this circled and underlined, circle of the earth. 2,700 years ago, Isaiah wrote about 700 years before the time of Christ. We're now, what, 2024? 2,700 years ago, before flat earth theory ideas existed or mankind was talking about it, God, who knows all things and who created all things, says, I am the one who, notice, doesn't sit upon, I sit above as supreme, God superior to everything in creation. Again, he's set apart, he's above all things, he's superior to all things. He says that he is the one who sits above the circle, spherical, of the earth. Now, you know, there have been times I've been around, well, honestly, I've number of weeks ago, I can recall a particular conversation. I was listening to two believers talking about flat earth theory, and, and, and they're having a conversation. I'm thinking, why, why are we even talking about this? We know what the word of God says. The, that's simple enough. The God sits above the circle of the earth. I don't care what anybody else says. Who are we to instruct God? No, no, it's flat earth theory. You got to know these, these conspiracy theories. Circle. God said it's a circle. I'll take God's word. He created it. He's got a much better vantage point than me as a little grasshopper down here on the earth saying, well, it looks flat to me. I don't know. All the books I read look, look kind of flat. Like, God's saying, trust me, I got a vantage point. It's a circle. And I'm keeping you on it. And if you don't act up, grasshopper, I'll let you fly right off it. You know, it's, just a, it's a circle, God said. I mean, sometimes we, we overthink things, I think, way too much, you know, professing to be wise people become fools. 2,700 years ago, God, by his spirit, inspired Isaiah. Isaiah, write this down, if you would, because it'll come up, he says. The circle of the earth, I'm sitting above it, and its inhabitants to me look like little grasshoppers. And I'm up here, he says, interesting, stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent. Interesting, they say, those who research those things, that the, you know, galaxies and the universe, that these things are ever-expanding. Now, I have no idea how they know that, so th that could be completely false. But it is interesting that they say things are always expanding, and here the Word of God says that God stretches out the heavens and spreads them out. Well, maybe they are constantly expanding. I don't know. You know. God, from his vantage point, is fully aware. In verse 23, again, of his greatness sitting superior to all other humanity, he brings the princes to nothing. Princes are those with civil power, political power, and he makes the judges, that is those with legal power. He says he makes the judges of the earth useless. So again, the idea here is just conveying this concept of how God in his supreme power, human beings, even with the greatest power of influence, 
political leaders, people with great civil power, judges and judicial systems. Oh my goodness, they have so much power and influence and we get all worked up and concerned and worried. And notice, they are unable to resist God long-term. God may permit people to act in rebellion and disobedience. Ultimately, he uses even the wrath of man, the Bible says, to praise him, right? So God can always work all things according to his will. Why did this political person get in the power? Because God allowed it. Sometimes you have to understand, Christians get so worked up over elections, and when the reality is, look, here's the bottom line. God gave people what they wanted. Might not have been what God wanted, but God said, if that's what you want, there you go. I'll still work it all according to my plans and purposes. But again, we see all throughout history, the kings of Israel. There were good kings, there were evil kings, but the important thing is to realize there's a king of kings who still superintends. He sits over the circle of the earth. He's in control of all things. He's got great power and authority, and he can bring leaders with their power at any point to nothing, and he can cause what people to do to be utterly useless and still orchestrate his purposes. And so we rest in those realities. We take encouragement. Verse 24 describes it. He says, scarcely regarding these leaders, shall they be planted? The idea is deeply rooted. Scarcely shall they be sown or take stock, uh, take root in the earth. When he, that's God, notice again, like our illustration earlier with the scales, will blow on them, that is these leaders, those with authority, he will blow on them when he's ready and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away just like stubble. See, at any given moment when God intends or if God needs to or God desires with ease, God can humble any leader God can remove any person in power and authority at any point if he so chooses. And sometimes we have to rest in that. We may not understand why is this person allowed to be in control or take authority. or But at the end of the day, we realize no, here's the bottom line, no one is overruling God, ultimately. They may be rebelling against God, resisting God, and God will allow people to rebel and resist it's a part of honoring free will. God doesn't force and control. But any time when God deems it's necessary, God can instantaneously, it says here, with the breath of his mouth, with the power of his whirlwind, he can take them away instantaneously. In any way he needs to, he can instantly remove someone if that's what's necessary to overrule in his purposes. Verse 25, he again says, to whom then will you liken me? God says it now personally. He's speaking in the first person. God says, who can you liken me to? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? And the answer there is clear. No one. God, no one's equal to you. But as we live out our lives, I think it's good sometimes as God asks us that in the first person, to whom shall I be equal in your life? Is there anyone in your life that you are giving equal preference to, equal submission to, equal honor to, equal attention to as God? We shouldn't be doing that. Even the most precious, important, valuable people in our life, God should always be foremost in our lives. No one should be equal to him. Nothing should be equal to him. He should be above and before all things in our lives practically as we live out our existence because of his greatness. He deserves that status, the idea is. Verse 26, he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created 
these things. God says, look up, see your creator. Who brings out their host? Now, there he's talking about the, the, the host, the stars, the, the stellar existence of the universe and the galaxies, all the stars, who brings out the host by number, and they say, <laughs> I don't know who uh, counts these things, that there are billions, not millions, billions. I won't tell you the different numbers I've heard because I don't know how they could be accurate anyway, but I'll go with billions. He says, all the billions of stars by number, and he calls them by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. So again, we think about the vastness of solar systems and galaxies and billions of stars. And notice the word of God tells us here that God is not only aware of the exact number of them, he's got everyone numbered, but he even gives everyone a name. That's a lot of names. He number he has the number of every single star and he calls them by name. Now look, if God is that powerful, that amazing in his control of all things, how much more incredible is it the fact that the Bible encourages us to realize he also knows your name? And the Bible tells us that Jesus says that every single hair of your head is numbered. The idea is God's that intimately aware of our lives. That God is fully aware he knows your name. He knows what's going on in your life. And think about it. This God who has all the stars numbered and all the stars named, he also condescends and he knows unique, specific, what seems like insignificant things, but he knows every little detail of your life. And he's involved in your life. He knows your name. He's got your address. He knows your situation. He knows what's going on. And we should take great comfort in that. Aren't you glad that the God who has that control over the stars is intimately involved in your life with all that power and all that wisdom and with great love towards you because he cares about you? He then points that out to us to then make this point. Here's now the application, verse 27. Why then do you say, oh, Jacob, we could insert our name in there, but he's saying this to the nation. Why do you say, oh, Jacob, and speak, oh, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. The idea is God doesn't see my situation. Yes, he's got all the stars numbered. And he knows everyone by name. But God does not know what's going on in my life. I know he doesn't. Doesn't he see what's going on in my life? Of course he sees what's going on. He's completely aware of what's going on in your life. The perception may be God doesn't see, but that's a wrong perception. Perceptions are not always accurate. Some people say perception is reality. I say, that's stupid. It's not always reality. Perception is wrong a lot of times. And our perception may be sometimes, my way is hidden from the Lord. It seems like that God's so aware of this, and he's so aware of that, and he's acquainted with this person's life, and he's addressing this but he's overlooking my life. And, and God says here, why would you, why would you in, indict me like that? Are you saying I'm a dysfunctional father? 
Are you saying I'm disconnected? I'm not involved in your life? Again, we don't want to accuse God of such things. We says, why would you say my way is hidden from the Lord? Look, he says, and my just claim, not just, hey, my, my file's being passed over here, my just claim. God, this, this is a, we, my case is just, but it seems like you're passing over my situation. It seems like you're not addressing my situation. My just claim is passed over by my God. Now, we may feel like that, and it may look like that sometimes. Maybe there's a delay in something that we're concerned about working itself out. Maybe it seems like there's been no movement in a particular prayer request, and it seems like sometimes God is unaware and that God's maybe even uninterested or like he's not engaged or he doesn't want to work or that he's not going to work. And we need to realize the error is simply on our end in just the gap of understanding. God is always aware, God is always able to work, and God has always got a plan in mind, but sometimes in our finite minds, he's going to say later on, his ways are what? Higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so there's always going to be that gap of understanding. There's going to be certain whys and confusion, and we don't grasp certain things. But sometimes we... We say these kind of things. He then says, verse 20, Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, referring to the fact that he has no beginning, he's been involved in everything, he's the everlasting God, which means he's very experienced. And I try and remind myself that I want to, as the everlasting God, that means from Adam and Eve through all human history, guess what God's been doing? He's been helping people just like me with the same kind of things. Because we go through stuff, and, and as we get in that kind of tunnel vision of, you know, we personalize things, and it's so present and real for us, and, and we start kind of like thinking like nobody has gone through this before. Not this. No, nobody has dealt with this before. This is too big. It is too complicated. It is, and when the reality is the everlasting God who's been helping human beings from Adam all the way through human history is in a sense looking at that saying, do you know how many times I've been involved helping people with that exact same scenario through human history? And in some ways, what that does is it consoles me because I realize God is very experienced. He never faces a new situation. It's like a new problem comes up and man, that's a new one. That's a new one there. We've never had that. That never happens. He's the everlasting God. He's been addressing things for all of the history of humanity. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He has incredible power. He can bring things into existence that don't even exist. He can create something that needs to come to pass that's never been there before. He's a creator. And he neither faints nor is he weary. In other words, he never tires out. God never begins to lack energy. He never begins to struggle and, and deal with something, and it just becomes too hard for his capacity. He never faints. We faint, right? We get weary, but God never gets tired. He never has a lack of energy, and his understanding is unsearchable. He then says in connection to that, verse 29, and he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. I love that promise. He gives power to the weak and those who have no might. 
Sometimes I think the problem that we struggle through is that we are so busy trying to do things in our power, in our self-sufficiency, in, in our strength, that God is saying, you're kind of holding me back on my promise here because I give power to the weak. And until you're ready to humble yourself and acknowledge you're weak, you don't have the capacity, you don't have the ability, God says, I can't give you my power because you're still trying to do it in your power. And if I were to give you even just a a small measure of my power, you're instantly going to think, oh, there you go. Because you could be on your last reserves, you're on your last 10%, and God says, I can give you about 5%, and that'll be all you need to, to get that done. But what would happen? God would give us a little bumper crop of power. And we'd, there you go, I did it. I just, I just had to muscle it out. I just took a little huffing and puffing, and I blew the house down there. So God says, I give my power to people in weakness, and when they have no strength left, when they're at the end of their resources, he says, to those who have no might, that's when I increase their strength. When we lack strength humanly and humbly admit it, God increases our strength by imparting supernatural power by his working. Again, Jesus said, you shall receive power, dunamis, spiritual dynamic, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Paul understood this. Second Corinthians chapter 12, he talked about it. You might want to go and reference. That's the occasion where Paul talks about his struggles, his human weakness and frailty, and he says he pleaded with the Lord Lord, take this away. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And he said, my power will be made perfect or complete, he says, in your weakness, to which Paul then said, therefore, most gladly will I boast in my infirmities, health, weakness, and struggles, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Again, in human weakness, it prepares a person for the power of Christ to rest upon them in their frailty humanly. Paul says, therefore, I take pleasure now in my infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The idea is in my human weakness, I become strong in the power of the Lord. That's when the power of the Lord is demonstrated. So what a wonderful promise in our weakness, when we lack strength, that he gives his power to us in our weakness. He's a God who changes not. We can rest in that. Verse 30, he then says, even the youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall utterly fall. So the idea there is everyone, even youths, those who are at, you might say, the peak strength in life, they have the greatest energy, the greatest enthusiasm. They don't get tired as easy. He says, even someone in their peak performance, even young people, even youths, we may think sometimes, oh, well, they'll just, th that God says, even youths at times, they get weak. They get wearied. Things get hard for them. Things become beyond their own capacity to handle. Even youths faint and be weary, and those who minister to youth and to young people, we should realize that. There are things at times that cause them to get wearied, that are beyond their capacity to handle, that make them go to a place where they feel like that they are about to faint. They're not going to make it. And he says this even happens to the young, to those who have peak ability, and at times they not only 
faint, but he said sometimes they themselves may even fall. They may utterly fall. They may collapse under the weight of things, but the assurance to all, because we all face things that are beyond our capacity at times as human beings. If you've not experienced that, you just haven't lived long enough yet. Everybody will face things that are beyond our ability to handle from time to time. But he says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Such a beautiful promise given there regarding human frailty and weakness, needing God's help once in a while. He says, look, this happens to all of us, but... The contrast, those who wait on the Lord. That term wait there isn't a phrase that means to sit idle, to wait and to do nothing. It's actually a term in the Hebrew that speaks of attending to something with great hope and expectation. The idea is you're waiting for a result. That's the implication there of the Hebrew term. It's actually a term that describes how, if you would, a, a waiter or a waitress attends to certain desires to seek to please, and they become involved in helping the one that they're attending to and being engaged. And the implication of the Hebrew means to intertwine two things together through involvement. So the idea of waiting on the Lord is I need to become engaged and involved in seeking the Lord and unifying, joining my life together with the Lord it's an active sense with an expectancy that I'm waiting for the result of that. And he says, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And the word renew there speaks of a change, or we might say an exchange of changing out from this to something different. Giving to God my weakness, giving to God my lack of ability, telling God this is too much for me to handle, and God says, okay, in exchange for your weakness, I'll give you my power, and I'll renew your strength. And notice, it's a renewal of strength. You know, we might say human beings, we're, we're just, we're kind of like batteries. They just, we just kind of wear out over time. The battery needs to get recharged, and sometimes as human beings, we need a renewal of strength from the Lord, and it's as we unify our life together with God, he gives to us supernatural power to renew us in exchange of his power for our weakness, and he says, they shall mount up with wings like eagles and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Now, as we look at this beautiful promise, probably one of the more famous promises in the book of Isaiah there, you, know, you look at that, you almost think the progression seems kind of like backwards. He talks about mounting up with wings like eagles, that he is soaring, right? And that's what the eagles would do. They would step off high cliffs and they would coast on what they call thermals where the hot air comes up from below on a cliff and the eagle would just open up its wings and catch a power source that was not its own and the hot thermal air would come up and they would soar on that thermal air to keep themselves afloat. All they were doing was making themselves available to operate under the power of a source that was not from themselves. And they soar off of a cliff, that idea is there. But it seems like, wait a minute, we're soaring on the wings of eagles, then we're running and not getting weary and running, and then walking and not fainting. Shouldn't it be walk, run, whoo, soar like Superman? 
Right? I mean, wouldn't that seem like the right way to go about things? First you walk, and then you, then you start running, and then as you walk and you start running, you build up enough steam, and then, man, you are soaring like an eagle. But the Bible puts it in the inverse. And to me, I just find that very unique and interesting. You almost wonder if perhaps sometimes the Lord is making us realize that sometimes there are going to be situations where it is so difficult and so hard that the only way we're going to get through it is to honestly completely cast ourselves upon the power of God. And it is so hard and so difficult, but God supernaturally infuses his power and his strength in our weakness that we literally can, like an eagle, peacefully soar over the most difficult, hard, scary circumstances, and it's almost like God supernaturally lifts us up and just lets us kind of miraculously, supernaturally soar through a process that is incredibly hard and incredibly large and difficult. And then there are going to be other times in our lives where we're in running the race, going to have to depend upon the power of God as we run our Christian race or run the race of our ministry, and the Lord will supernaturally empower us to not get weary in the process, but to keep running the race. And then there are times in our Christian life as well, which is more often the routine daily experience, when as we walk one step at a time, God gives us the daily power to not grow faint. And see, the reality is, I think the progression is from rare to most common. We're not always dealing with huge, massive things in life where we need to soar like an eagle by the power of God. We're not always running the race hard where we need to run our race and not grow weary. But the one thing we are doing every single day, right, is walking walking one step at a time with God, walking out our experience with the Lord. And that is the thing, folks, quite honestly, that it is one of the realities of really what genuine Christianity is going to be about, a daily walk with God and learning how to take one step after another and by the power of God, walking and not fainting spiritually in your relationship with the Lord. You know, I often don't quote very much, but one of the things that one of the commentators uh, I read said about this passage, I read it years ago, but just such a wonderful explanation of some of what's here. Let me read it to you. This is from a part of a Warren Wearsby commentary. He says this, as we wait before him, God enables us to soar when there is a crisis, to run when the challenges are many and to walk faithfully in the day-by-day demands of life. It is much harder to walk in the ordinary pressures of life than to fly like an eagle in our times of crisis. I can plod, said William Carey, the father of a modern missions. (laughs) He says this, William Carey, regarding I can plod. This is my only genius. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. The greatest heroes of the faith are not always those who seem to be soaring. Often, it is those who are patiently 
plotting. We wait on the Lord. He enables us to not only fly higher, to run faster, but also to walk longer. Blessed are the plotters, for they eventually arrive at their destination. Let's stand together.